Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. My name is Alejandro Rojas, and I'm going to be your host today. I hope that's all right with you. It most likely is, though, because I'm always the host, and you come back. Thank you very much for doing that, because often I'm kind of silly and uh, a bit of a goofball, but uh, I'm getting choked up here. I'm so happy that you come back every week. You know who else comes back every week, and... uh, Sometimes, well, I was going to say sometimes gets me choked up. I don't know that it's gotten me choked up, but it has made me feel very warm and happy uh, inside and grateful. And and that is the fact that Martin Willis comes back. Martin DeBunker Willis. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the first time. I, that is definitely the first time. You're not a DeBunker. I'm just kidding. That. The only yeah. reason I said that. It's because you added a bunker on your show last week. But here's the funny thing. I commend you for it. I think that that's awesome because um, it's really important. And, and uh, just to give people some background, people need to go listen to Martin's show. Uh, was it just last week? Yes. Wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because yep. you had on the guy who figured out what the Chilean Air Force uh, or the Chilean Navy – infrared video was and uh at first you know we're like huh does this guy really got it what's going on you were bold enough to interview the guy and talk to him and see how he came up with it and leslie uh kane who wrote the original story about the whole thing came out and had other analysis by our friend good friend robert powell and others and said "Uh oh uh i think the metabunk guy is right although she didn't use his name or or reference the site which she probably should have because he was the first guy. You got to give credit where credit is due, and that's one thing I love about you is that uh, you do that. Well, thank you, man. And um, I did ask him the question you wanted me to ask him, and mm-hmm. that is, um, why didn't he contact Sefaha before he posted his story? And basically, if someone wants to listen, I think he said something along the lines where, you know, things get lost in email. He wanted to get going on this because he saw, you know, the results were really solid mm-hmm. so so all good but um yeah, yeah interesting guy not but, only that the other thing is at uh, there are certain terms that we shy away from that we should not shy away from and and it's one of my pet peeves in this field and debunker is not a bad term now there are debunkers who don't really care about doing anything but explaining away everything but debunking is something we all should be doing. I regularly do mm-hmm. that. I always call uh, – Mark D'Antonio makes fun of me for calling him a debunker, and, and he tries to shy away from that. But he is. He does debunk a lot of stuff, and that is a good thing. He is able to find explanations for things that are often prosaic and not 
anomalous. And the reason that is so important is the same reason it's important in science is because once you cannot explain something away, that's when it's really important. And as mm -hmm. good researchers, just like a good scientist, you got to work as hard as possible to look for answers because then mm -hmm. it's much more significant when you don't have an answer. That's right. I, I would call the, the debunkers pseudo-debunkers, the one that just make um, claims. And, you know, it's just there yeah, are two, right. two sides of this, um, you know, of this U UFO field. And one of them is, you know, the fringe side. And then one of the, is the pseudo-skeptic or um, pseudo-debunker mm -hmm. side, you know, and then everything else kind of falls in between. Right. I guess we need it all because <laughs> it all is a part of uh the the functioning this thing works but you know it's sort of a little bit along the lines of and i hate to say this probably going to get some mail about this but a little along the line of the uh, roswell slides everyone went to action and and they cracked it and right uh, and so i think you know this is just another situation um however i don't think there was there was absolutely no ill intent when it comes to this uh mm. chilean um you know situation none at all it's just that, um, as you would hear uh, Mike, uh, Mick West say, the debunker, basically that he is very, very uh, skilled in um, contrails and, and debunking them. Ah. So that's how he got involved in this. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been studying it for years. And um, yeah. so that's uh, where he started. Well, I did an interview last night with, or the other night, it's going to air tonight with Greg Bishop, Radio Mysterio. He's one of the speakers for the Congress. He's a pilot, and he hmm. looked very closely. And it was fun talking to him because we talk, he talked in detail about some of the, the things he looked at, aeronautical maps, stuff like this, at uh, you know, um, no-fly zones. Um, he technically knows a lot more about communicating with the tower and all of these things I wouldn't know about. So it was interesting. And uh, he had come to the same conclusion that he uh, felt that the, the metabug thing was correct in his own research. Um, so, yeah, that's something important that we all uh, need to do. You know, you and I get excited about some of these videos we talk about and think they look weird because we can't figure out what they may be. But uh, many, if not all of them, could be explainable. You know, we, uh, we all mm -hmm. make mistakes. We all have different expertise. And so, and there's no doubt there are at least two or three cases that I've taken to people such as Mark and said, come on, dude, this is the real deal. <laughs> and then they sit down and, and explain how I'm wrong in terms I can understand. And then I feel like, oh, not again. And then I got to get Mark in a headlock and give him a noogie. But, well, I got to um, tell you, he's sharp and I want to make a case in point on the way to Phoenix, a long drive to Phoenix, I was we were going along the desert and my girlfriend snapped a picture just out the window at the desert landscape. Well, she sent me the picture and there's this perfect disc shaped thing in the sky. And I go, you got to be kidding me. I think I may even forwarded this to you. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I got to the conference, Mark D'Antonio was there and I said, hey, Mark, check this out. And so he's looking at it really closely for a second. He goes, I think you might have something on your window. So I looked at the picture really closely and I said, how the heck would you ever, you know, that, where are you getting this? So I went out <laughs> to the car and I looked on the window and there was a little tiny speck of grass that looked like, <laughs> if you <laughs> oh, pull yourself back a little bit, it looks like the disc. It's That's exactly what he what does. It it's infuriating, <laughs> that little son of a gun. He bursts our bubble. 
Yeah, yeah. that's a perfect example. So, you know, so uh, this here's to the real debunkers and debunking and not the pseudo debunkers. There they're, you go. They're bad. But I even like some of them, to be honest. Like Robert Schaefer. He comes to the conference every year. Uh, he writes a thing where he talks crap about all of our speakers, including myself. Uh, actually, he's pretty nice with me because I usually am not making bombastic claims. Um, uh-huh. But he'll poke holes and stuff like that. But you know what? It's it's brave of him to the, come to the conference every year. And uh, and he does make a lot of valid points. He, he I, He's... A bit of a pseudo debunker because he makes a lot of invalid points. Point, you know, things like, uh, uh, although you know, let's say the Phoenix Lights, maybe there is some sort of uh, uh, earthly explanation, but it was not A-10 warthogs, which are like the loudest aircraft right. in the sky, flying over these people's heads and them not knowing what it was. So stuff like that is a little silly. But um, you well, know. you have your time right now to get him back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he will uh, – I'm sure he's going to be at the conference again. I think he even told me so. So uh, let's see. What else? Oh, uh, the for today, we've got – speaking of debunking, on the show today, we are debunking everybody's favorite case, Roswell, with one of the most eminent researchers. You know, maybe, uh, dare I say, my favorite researcher – when it comes to Roswell, uh, and I have a lot of favorites. I, I mean, I love a lot of these Roswell researchers, um, but I really like Kevin, uh, Kevin Randall, who is our speaker today. And we're not really completely debunking Roswell. However, what I love about Kevin is that he is um, he's honest and, and painfully so, brutally uh, honest to himself and to others. And uh, I think a lot of times when it comes to Roswell research, people or other research, people get relationships. They feel for the witnesses, you know. And um, so then they're less uh, – they they don't scrutinize what the content of what these witnesses are saying uh, sufficiently. And so that's what Kevin Randall has done. Uh, he's gotten a lot of flack uh, lately because Robert Schaefer and others have said – Kevin Randall is changing his tunes in Roswell. He doesn't buy Roswell. Not true at all. And when I saw these stories, I noticed not one of these people is referencing Kevin Randall's actual words, nor have they asked him his thoughts. So I went to Kevin's site, and I found a blog where he said, well, everybody's saying I recanted Roswell. Here's what I actually feel. And so I brought him on the show to to talk about those things. And he does talk about how some of the witnesses kind of have holes in their stories or have Mm -hmm. changed their stories. Or in some cases, they found to be out and out inaccurate or untruthful. And so taking a step back, uh, the case is not as strong as he had once thought. However, he certainly feels there is still a mystery un unlike what these uh, stories are implying. And so we'll talk in details about some of the most well-known uh, uh, witnesses and, and claims. And uh, I, this was a great conversation. Um, you know, I was on the Paracast last week. I've been doing a lot of shows to help promote the conference. And I love the Paracast with Chris O'Brien mm-hmm. and uh, Gene. And um, they were kind of saying, you know, this is Roswell closed. We're closing the book on Roswell. We had Kevin on, and, and that's what we did last week. And I was like, 
I, you know, I don't think you can ever really close the book on Roswell, and I talk about that with Kevin, but uh, an example being, you know, we've talked a lot about Tom DeLong, and he mentioned in these Podesta emails, oh, I have exciting news that way, too. Uh, he mentioned in these Podesta emails that, uh, you know, he's been talking to one of the generals who was in charge of the labs that he that Tom DeLong says, because he must believe this, you know, got the material from the craft that crashed at Roswell. He even implies in, in a Facebook uh, posting that this guy may have told him that, that we have an alien body, that we've retrieved <laughs> a body. So, I mean, uh, what's up with that? So there's an example that uh, here's a new avenue of investigation, something that may or may not produce anything, but uh, something to look at. So Roswell's not dead, and I don't know that uh, it'll be quite some time, I think, till it's completely dead, I think. What do you think? Um, yeah, you know, I think, uh, and I've mentioned this before in my show, that I think as time goes on, can you imagine um, if we don't have any solid evidence? I, I, it kills me to say this, but say in 100 years, if we don't have any solid evidence, as uh, as if it's just status quo the way things are now, um, where Roswell ha would have mystified and morphed. Um, it, it, you just don't know what it's going to yeah. be like. All the research is gone and some books and, uh, you know, you're there every July. So you see what what goes. Basically, and it just becomes more and more of a type of, of an event and uh, mystified. Mm -hmm. So um, but I do think definitely that there is I just think it's just too much. Just to uh, shrug the whole thing off. I'm going to be interested. I had Kevin on recently, but we didn't really focus on Roswell. So I'm definitely going to listen to the show. And Kevin is definitely one of my very, very favorite people um, in the field. And uh, he also has a show now, too, um, which I really enjoy listening to. Yeah, he does. He's got a podcast out. And, uh, uh, yep, he's great. Um, speaking of which, you know, uh before I get back to this big news, I'll start the news. Sorry, I know yeah, no usually problem. that you do that. But um, I, I wanted to mention another show I've been on recently is Global Newsmaker with uh, Focus with Patrice Sheridan. Um, so everybody can go check that out. That's Global Newsmaker Focus with Patrice Sheridan. You can go Google that. She's on KGRA, I believe. But she's great. She's been coming to the conference uh, for many years. In fact, she came – to I think my very first UFO gathering I put together in Colorado like nearly 20 years ago and she's like from the east coast or something and I was shocked because this was kind of a local Denver thing I was doing um, and she came all across the country to, to come see some of these speakers we had some great people in Denver so but that was really cool so she's a great lady it was a lot of fun to talk to her again um, and tonight I'm going to be on a show called Beyond – I think it's called Beyond Reality. It's with Jason Hawes, the guy hmm. who uh, – the ball plumber guy who was on uh, uh, Ghost Hunters. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so Ghost Hunters is over, uh, but he's now doing a podcast, and so I'll be on that tonight. I, I don't know that he has much interest in UFOs or anything, so it'll be interesting to find that out. But uh, I have met him before because uh, in Denver, 
uh, we brought him to do a talk out there about ghosts and stuff. So he's a cool guy. This ought to be really interesting. Um, another guy who, at least in the beginning, and I would assume still now, I mean, he felt like debunking ghost stories was a big deal. Same thing, because you need to figure out what it might be before you can say that it's actually mysterious. So that ought to be fun. But the big news. Ready for it? Drum roll. Yeah. Ben calls me uh, Hanson. He's going to be speaking at the conference. He's putting together his talk on president uh, comments and UFOs because Obama, Clinton, Hillary Clinton all talked about UFOs on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Hillary Clinton, and other places. And he looks at their body language to figure out if they're telling the truth or lies or anything. And he's looking in details in the Podesta WikiLeaks and stuff like this. And he says, hey, you know that WikiLeaks that you're, uh, you're referenced in? And I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, the wiki, you didn't even know this? And I was like, no. And he said, yeah, your story is one in one of the WikiLeaks. So how cool is that? I know. Um, I saw that on your Facebook. I was like, holy moly. And I think that <laughs> you commented something rather uh, rather comical about that. Yeah, he said something funny about it. Yeah, he was teasing um, you. Yeah. And we had speculated because when Jimmy Kimmel went on with Obama – uh, Jimmy Kimmel had said something like, you know, you're going to get analyzed. Everything that you say here, uh, people are doing that. And he was referencing Ben and Ben's work. And we know this because of a, a story uh, in one of the major news outlets where where this was uh, highlighted. So uh, which is pretty funny. So we had, you know, Ben and I had talked about who else is reading these. You know, do you think Hillary read it? Do you think uh, Podesta read it and stuff like this? So this WikiLeaks is in regards to something I've already reported to all of you, which is that through the WikiLeaks, we see conversations between Podesta and Hillary's people where they were prepared for Jimmy Kimmel's questions about UFOs. And I hadn't poured through all of them because I, I got the gist and I saw, you know, the, the theme. I should have looked further through because in one of these emails, it's really funny. So Essentially, this email uh, is forwarded to Bethesda, and it's a conversation between Hillary uh, and his people. And uh, one of them says, okay, here's what I think essentially we should do with the UFO skit on Jimmy Kimmel. And this lady, Sarah Latham, she's a more, um, you know, uh, higher up. She's like, what are you talking about? Why would they want to talk about aliens? And so uh, the other aide replied and said, well, Podesta and Bill Clinton have a history of talking about aliens. Here's some reference. Here's some background on that. She posts a Mother Jones story and, and talks a little about it, bit about it. And then she posts my story and talks as a reference for Bill Clinton's comments and talks a little bit about that. And my story uh, was about Bill Clinton's appearance on Jimmy Kimmel and then Bill Clinton's history in relation to UFOs in Area 51 which included John Podesta. So, um, uh, yeah, pretty awesome. cool. They referenced me as a, you know, and uh, I read it and I thought, you know, this would give them some good background on, on all of uh, Clinton's because I included everything, you know, all the different comments he's made and everything. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, so that's really cool. That is, you are a star, man. Yeah, I don't do it just to pat myself on the back, but I mean, that's cool. I think it that's is cool. exciting. I mean, it, yeah, I'm excited about it. But anyway, good there, exposure. What, there's yeah. probably more important news out there. What news is out there, my buddy? Well, this seems a little, uh, well, 
not quite as exciting as your news. Hmm. Um, not at all. But <laughs> and a Georgia witness describes a UFO chased by a military helicopter. Now, this happened in uh, Cumming, uh, Georgia. I'm not really sure exactly where that is in reference to the uh, state. But um, he was watching a, a military helicopter, and it seemed to be chasing a tubular-shaped glowing white object. That is pretty odd. You don't usually hear of something exactly like that. Mm-hmm. So um, this happened, uh, it was back on December 2nd of last year, 2016, and it was about um, 7.22. He was sitting um, in his patio, on his patio in a hot tub. Now, you may think that's funny because everyone always teases me because that's where I had my UFO sighting <laughs> in a hot tub. And I wasn't drinking or anything like that. That's what they always ask. You know, you were probably drinking. But anyway, he was facing south toward the back of his house and he heard a faint chop, chop, chop of the helicopter. And a few seconds later, um, he saw a red light. He assumed it was a running light from the helicopter, but it was in the sky um, and it emerged heading uh, west. And so um, the chopper proceeded approximately 30 seconds, and uh, he thought he would just get back to the hot tub, and then he started hearing the chopper again. And uh, so it was considerably louder and moving very fast. And at this point, um, that's when he uh, he saw the object, um, and the thing was, uh, this is a quote from him, when it passed by, the chopper was completely black, and there were no lights remaining from the cabin, just a red running light. And this is where it gets interesting. Just in front of the chopper, about 50 to 70 feet, was a tubular-shaped glowing white object silently screaming by. And uh, he know uh, that it made no dis- discernible noise and simply because the chopper was so loud, basically, in front of it. But uh, interesting case. Um, you don't hear a lot of thing, a lot of things going on in Georgia. Okay, coming as a, uh, a city in Forsyth, county um i still don't know it's not really that far away from atlanta looks like about an hour and an hour or so away from atlanta but uh kind of an interesting one a white tubular flying object how about that yeah weird that is a a strange one it's an interesting uh account um when did that one happen again that was back in i believe it was december 2nd of last year okay yeah very interesting a lot of strange things happen to you when you're in a hot tub that's true. Yes. One of our recent emails, I wrote about that, about how uh, at our conference, uh, it's not unusual to find some of the speakers in the hot tubs because most of them are from a colder area. And yeah. uh, it's not unusual to find me in the hot tub. So you can hot tub with some of your favorite UFO researchers. And, well, I'm a uh, hot tubber and uh, a hot tubber. I don't know. That doesn't really sound good. But I <laughs> going to tell you, um, I actually want to tell you the UFO sighting I had was pretty amazing. But the most amazing sight I ever had in a hot tub and I was in my 20s mm-hmm. was a fireball. Never seen anything like the thing was really breaking apart and, and turning as it was moving. It was like this big, huge thing just right over. It looked like it was right over my head. And I wasn't too far from the Atlantic wow. Ocean, so I just assumed it landed in the Atlantic Ocean, only to find out that it landed in China. Really? Whoa! Or there was the, the same the same day, basically. Uh, it was nighttime yeah. for me, but daytime in China, and uh, CNN reported it uh, landing. You need to spend more time in your so hot tub. So that was back tub. in the uh, 1980s. Some amazing stuff happens to you in <laughs> hot tubs. 
Wow. I know. I was a little worried yeah. when you said the most amazing site I had in a hot tub. I was wondering where, where you're going go. there. But well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. get into that. But yeah. wow. Well, that's cool. That that is cool. I've seen a really cool fireball that made the news too. Um, but uh, and that was incredible. So I can only imagine one that makes it all the way to China. So pretty cool. So did you see the other video that's posted? Uh, this was from December 23rd at about 5 p.m. This was in Canada and at Etsy's Bridge, where this guy videotaped a stationary light. He said was making a growling noise, and then it quickly moved away. And it looks like, you know, I guess it could be because of the noise it was making a um, a drone. Mm-hmm. But it looks really high up there, and it's just sitting there for a while. And then it zooms off. So, And, and if it is a drone, it, it must be very high up in the air. And, I mean, I don't know what kind of battery power these things have, but um, – this was it, it's kind of a weird video. Uh, so, did you see that one? Uh, yeah, I did. I did, and it does seem to. It first of all, a couple of things about it. It's pretty bright, mm-hmm. um, and it's an overall brightness. Not like um, it, you know, maybe drones can do that. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it does seem to be moving fairly fast. Yeah, yeah, so, it, yeah. It is up, and it seems to flash, but that might be just an atmospheric thing. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be flashing or blinking, and it's sitting there for a little while before it kind of takes off and uh, not, you know, a streak of light, but it's moving uh, pretty quickly. So, yeah, that was kind of an interesting one, too. So people should check that one out. You can check these all out at openmind.tv. Righto. Any more news, my friend? Well, I do want to say something. Okay. And um, that was about your your last guest, uh, MJ. Uh, help me there, MJ Benias. MJ Benias. What a great show! If uh, if the listeners uh, have not checked that out yet, I strongly suggest it. It was at, you know between Greg Bishop and uh, this uh, this guy. I, I think two of my favorite shows I've listened listened wow. to this year. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, well, uh, he was great. I, I had a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, he's someone I hope becomes more prominent in this field because uh, I think he's a, a very intelligent young man. And, uh, yeah, I really liked it, too. Level-headed and well-spoken. Very, yeah. very good stuff. All right. Well, we are out of time and uh, running out of time. I'm running out of battery power, so we better go. Ooh. But uh, thank you once again for joining us. And uh, let's go ahead and... See what Kevin Randall has to say. I am very happy to welcome back to the show Kevin Randall. Hello, how are you? I am fine, and how are you? You're looking good, according to the picture I see here. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yep, uh, uh, that picture does me justice. It was a That picture, it was a sunny day, and... Uh, the Johnson Space Center, where I got to do this media thing, and uh, that's the, one of the rover things behind me. Well, I saw the NASA symbol back there, and I was yeah. impressed. So that was pretty cool. But uh, you have been pretty busy. I was just did the Paracast yesterday, and they said you were on it. And uh, one thing they talked about was closing the book on Roswell, so we'll talk about that. But uh, this article, I guess, or these articles have gone out about you, and, and they're claiming you're recanting your, or changing your view on Roswell. And uh, However, I went to your site so, because none of these sites were referencing direct quotes from you, 
and uh, I read you had written a blog about all of this. But I guess how did this how did this all get started? Uh, poor reporting. <laughs> Jerry Clark um, had asked for a copy of the. Actually, I sent Jerry Clark a copy of the um, manuscript to review, uh, just to see if I'd missed something as I was writing the book Roswell in the 21st Century. Mm-hmm. And then he said, "If he would, if I could get him a re- review copy of the book, I don't know why I can't speak this morning. A review <laughs> copy of the book, uh, he would do a review for it. And and I know Jerry would either do a very good review, or he wouldn't. If he didn't like it, or there was something wrong with it, he'd tell me, and he wouldn't review it. So he did a, a review that came out in Fortean Time that said, and the headline said, Roswell recanted." Mm-hmm. And all I really had done in the book, I, I went back and I looked at it as a cold case, and I tried to review the evidence that had been presented and look at it from a somewhat skeptical point of view, but a, a more dispassionate point of view. Uh, what, what can I divine from this, all this information I have? And uh, uh, I distilled it into the book. So I was trying not to uh, promote the extraterrestrial case, or the mogul balloon case, or anything like that. I was trying to present the evidence so that the reader, whomever it was, would be able to make up his or her own mind about where Roswell went. And uh, Jerry said, and, and it's kind of basically in the book, said that I had stepped backwards from the extraterrestrial as the ultimate, yes, that's definitely what it was. Uh, what I really kind of said is, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. The evidence... When we look at it dispassionately, it's fairly weak. All we have are some testimonies and a couple of newspaper articles and an FBI telex that doesn't tell us much. And looking at it from that point of view, it's just not the robust case that we had thought it was in the 1990s. And I, and I say we, Don Schmidt and I, when we began our research or as we progressed to our research, it just isn't that robust. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the really good testimonies, the ones that were exciting because we're talking about alien bodies, have blown up. Uh, the witnesses were less than candid in what they were saying. Uh, they contradicted themselves in the course of their statements, sometimes in the in the course of a paragraph, sometimes in the course of a sentence about the, what it might have seen or what they didn't see and that sort of thing. So it really comes down to testimony that was gathered uh, at best, 35 or 40 years after the fact, and some of it much later than that. And that's really all we have is this this testimony. We haven't looked for any documentation. And by documentation, I don't care whether it was a personal diary, a letter. Something was dated from 1947. We can say, yeah, this this thing uh, mentions the UFO crash uh, and, and the recovery of the craft and the bodies from somebody who was clearly in Roswell. We could put them in Roswell, something like that, a letter, a diary, a journal. Anything like that. The closest we came was Inez Wilcox, who was the wife of Sheriff George Wilcox, who was involved almost from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pause you. Sorry, just for a second. Uh, Something is brushing up against the microphone. Oh, that's probably my shirt. (laughs) I shall unbutton my shirt and move my collar, so it won't do that anymore. Okay, thank you. Um, Anyhow, the, the closest we came was a article written by Inez Wilcox called Four Years in the County Jail. She, of course, being the wife, was the matron of the jail. So it was kind of a play on the words. And there was a one long paragraph in there that talks about the, the flying saucer crash. 
but it's undated. Hmm. The article itself is undated. This was an addition that she wrote sometime later because it says right on it, add, or add A or add one or something like that. It's an addition to the original story she wrote. So when she wrote the original story, the um, talk of the alien creatures, the talk of the recovery wasn't that important, so she added it to her. So the only thing I could do since I, Inez Wilcox was dead and we had learned about some of the stuff and we got the actually got the uh, – document from a granddaughter the only thing i could do is find out when she died if she died prior to 1980 that would be great because then she couldn't have written the thing after all the information about roswell came out but she died in 1989 so we really can't say that it was not in response to the um, publicity around the roswell case and i i I think about while you and i when, when this story broke, may have not paid any attention to it, although we were interested in UFOs, and when I say broke in, in 1980, I remember seeing a copy of the Roswell Incident book and think, figured it was just the Aztec ca- case repro- uh, repackaged. So I didn't pay any attention to it at the time, but the people in Roswell certainly would have noticed it because their town would have featured prominently in it, and I think family members would have uh, been interested in it simply because their family members were mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't do us any good uh, because we couldn't put a date on it. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the problem. We don't have anything like that. You would think in 1947, I understand that it was classified. I understand that uh, people were told not to talk about it. But that's still, you know, somebody's private journal or private uh, diary. I, I just can't believe somebody somewhere didn't write something down that could be dated. But we couldn't, we've never found any of that. Mm-hmm. We were talking to, a, I was talking to a woman uh, a number of years ago. And she said that they had a diary, and it was out in their back house, in the, uh, not back house, but their storage shed in New Mexico. So I'm thinking I'm going to go eventually down there and, and uh, search through this thing. And talking to Tom Carey about it, and he said, yeah, he'd talked to her as well. And they, they had actually been there, and the shed is filled with scorpions and snakes, two of my very favorite things. <laughs> And uh, they couldn't find it, and it just seemed to be one of those stories that we get that went nowhere. We were told about photographs that had been taken in 1947 by a rancher or somebody. And it turned out they wouldn't tell me the last name, the the, the source for this, wouldn't tell me the last name, but he kept mentioning the guy's first name. The guy's first name was weird enough that I thought we may be able to find it. And I went to the county assessor's office and asked if they could sort their records by first name, the tax records by first name. They said, yeah, they can do that, which they did for me. And they came up with three entries, two were service stations, and one was one was an individual. And Don and I went over to his house, and we chatted with him for a long time, and it turned out he didn't have any photographs or anything like that. So, I mean, there's another lead that blew up on us. But that's the, the, the real point is when we get down to the nitty-gritty, when we get down to searching for those sorts of things, we couldn't find anything. All we are left with is the testimony uh, some of it very, very dubious now that we look back on it. Um, I, you know, Bill Brazel talked to us. I don't think there's anything dubious about what he told us. And he talked about some of the things that he had found. Uh, Loretta Proctor would be the same way. Uh, I, I think that she might have incorporated um, additions to her story as as they uh, talked about it amongst themselves during the great uh, explosion of Roswell interest in the early 1990s, which is not to say she was uh, lying or confabulating. She was just uh, adding 
details to um, her, her story that probably came from somebody else saying things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Mac Brazel was held at Roswell for a number of days. How do we know? The, the provost marshal, Edwin Easley, told me that. And, and uh, he, he said he was held in the guest house. Uh, and Bill Brazel complained about his father being held in jail. And Marion Strickland, another of uh, the... Mm-hmm. And Bill Brazel being uh, the... Uh, son. Son of the first person who found the material. Yes, yes. Yeah, Bill Brazel... Uh, so we could keep everybody uh, up to speed with us. So, yeah. So Bill Brazel, uh, being the son, saying that his father was detained after he came yes. forward um, saying he had found this material. Yes, yes. And Edwin Easley, the provost marshal at the base, that's the top police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in charge, I think, of two different companies responsible for security on the base and things like that. I know as my experience as, as an intelligence officer, I don't know whether it was the same back in 47. I also was responsible for gathering security clearances and all kinds of ancillary things like that that I never thought of as an intelligence function. And given this was a, uh, a large organization, they may have had specific people who, would, who were responsible for those sorts of things. Although Jesse Marcel talked about um, doing security clearances or the, the record shows he was doing security clearances and all that sort of thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, point, the point simply is uh, um, uh, Easley had said that Brazel had been held in the guest house. And Marion Strickland, who was one of the ranchers, wife of one of the ranchers out there, uh, said that she remembered Mac Brazel complaining about being held in jail after he was released. Well, the guest house isn't exactly jail, but if you're locked in and you're not allowed to leave, it's virtually the same thing. Mm-hmm. And this was the, the Army holding him. Yes, yes, the Army. Uh-huh. Uh, Army Air Force is technically at the time, but we don't need right. to get that specific. But I mean, so we, we have that sort of thing, but we get back to um, what, we're, what we're talking about is nobody interviewed Mac Brazel. He had died in 1963. We talked to the son, Bill Brazel, who has since passed away and got a lot of information from him. We talked to Marion Strickland. So we looked at all of that sort of thing. And I mean, when we did these things, uh, we either recorded it on audio tape or recorded it on videotape. So we have a record of what was said. But still, what we have basically is testimony, and a lot of it uh, secondhand. I mean, Marion Strickland heard Mac Brazel talk about being held in jail, but she didn't observe him in jail. So technically, she's a secondhand witness. Mm-hmm. So when we get down to the bottom line in Roswell, where we are is we have testimony, uh, but not the kind of robust testimony we wanted. Most of the people who talked about the bodies have been shown not to be telling the truth. Uh, the only one that I talked to personally that saw the bodies was a guy named Thomas Gonzalez, and he's about the only one that hasn't blown up in our faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got others like Melvin Brown. The family talked about what he had told them, but again, it's secondhand testimony. Well, what did Gonzalez tell you? Well, he, he just confirmed that he had been in Roswell in 1947, and he's in the yearbook, so there's no mm-hmm. problem there. He was clearly there, and that he had – he. In, in the course of his duties on those days, had an opportunity to do to uh, see the bodies. I, I, I kept thinking of words, view the bodies, examine. Now he just kind of glimpsed the bodies in the distance. And what he had done for years and years afterwards is make little carvings of them. Huh. And uh, uh, again, we can't date those, mm-hmm. uh, but but I I have pictures of five or six of them that he had he had made, and so we we have a picture of that. But I mean, so he, you know, there's a guy who. A uh, first-hand witness to the bodies, but we didn't get a whole lot of information out of him. He said he was 
um, transferred off the base almost immediately after these events. You go back and look at the military records of of um, the 509th Bomb Group, the, the, the guys at the base, and you see that their um, personnel, the number of people assigned to the base, didn't vary all that much between July of 1947, say August or September. But what we do find when we examine it more closely is a lot of people were transferred out and a lot of people were transferred in, so they're spreading the people out. There's a letter or a um, report by Edwin Easley again complaining that a large number of his military police have been transferred off the base after uh, July of 1947. The problem is these guys were trained specifically uh, in the security of the atomic weapons, and there weren't, you know, that was the 509 was the only uh, atomic bomb group in the world at the time, and there was a lot of things that, that went along to guarding the weapons that weren't normal MP functions, you know, because it was kind of elite. So what they were doing was transferring these guys out and bringing in. People, new people. So you see that the, num the numbers of MPs didn't change significantly, but the people assigned to the base uh, changed significantly. So there, there was some of that going on. But you know, can you say, well, that's because of the, 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 the craft falling, or was that because they were preparing for other um, companies, MP companies, to be guarding the atomic weapons in other locations? So it was kind of a train the trainers thing. Uh, the, the trainers mm -hmm. were trained, and then these guys go out and they train the, the the MPs in the next company because you know the the atomic force would be expanding. So you need people trained like that. So you could you can make that argument as well. It really wasn't a direct result of the Roswell case, but it was a direct result of what their training had been. Mm -hmm. Well, see, that's why you're the perfect person, I think, to talk about all of this. Is that first of all, well, for several reasons, uh, you're more discerning. Uh, than most in this field. That's what I really appreciate about what you do. You also have this military background, so you can uh, be able to identify whether or not um, these actions were uh, unordinary or, or you know, indicate something uh, strange was going on. Uh, which you you're in a particular. You're in a position where you can explain like what you just explained. So you can say, hey, you know, this isn't as weird as it may look for someone who doesn't know what how this stuff works. And, and it could be just as weird as we think it is. It's just there is an alternative explanation that process mm -hmm. right back into the mundane. Right. So, we, so it, mm -hmm. I was going to say it's like these witnesses that um, – you know, you have to be disciplined and not to get too emotionally invested uh, or into what uh, your relationship with these people so that you can look from uh, – take a step back and look at it and say, okay, now does this really give us any substance? Does this really give us a strong indication of something definitely happened? And uh, others I think might not be as willing as you are to be able to say, hey, you know – just because I like this person, um, I've got to stand back as a, as a researcher or an investigator and say, you know, what do I have here, though, out of what they're saying, and could they have made mistakes? And you have to be that careful with such extraordinary claims um, well, as the, are being made with this. The best example of that is Walter Hott. I mm -hmm. mean, here's a really likable guy. He helped everybody out. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how many so times in, I was in his background. Sorry, the background well, I, on him. I was, I was going. I was going to. I was going to do that. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I just want to make sure because I. I don't want listeners to get lost because there's so many different people. 
But yeah, so there's, there's like 1,500 players in this thing. But Walter Hott, <laughs> yeah. Walter Hott was the guy that issued the press release. Uh, he was assigned to the base. He's flitted there. His picture's in the yearbook. He was um, uh, the public information officer. He's the guy that wrote the press release or released the press release because he, he said at one time he wrote it, one time that it was dictated to him over the phone, one time that um, Colonel Blanchard, the base commander at the 509th, gave him the information. Anyhow, he was the guy that took the press release around Roswell and Actually, I think he phoned phoned it in, tri- literally phoned it in. He called the, the hmm. various media and, and read the press release to him over the phone. I think that's actually what he did. But anyhow, uh, he became sort of the um, focal point. If you go to Roswell and you wanted to uh, investigate the Roswell case, one of your first stops had to be Walter Hott. And he invited everybody in the house. They had a guest book in their living room that, that you would sign, say, keeping track of all the people who <laughs> traipsed through their house, uh, famous and infamous and unknown and known. And uh, he was always providing information. And one of the people he pointed us at was Glenn Dennis, the Roswell mortician, the guy that uh, had called, supposedly called to ask about, uh, uh, or was called about the small coffins and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I, he gave us a, no, a number of names like that. But those leads seem to have blown up. Uh, I don't think Glenn Dennis was directly involved. I don't think there was a nurse. He was the one that came up with the nurse who had said that she'd been involved in some kind of preliminary autopsy out at the base and gave us a name, and we chased the woman for years. Never found her, and uh, once we proved that the name he'd given us had never been a military nurse or a nurse in Roswell, uh, he changed the name on us, blaming us for our, uh, not remembering what he said. So, I mean, his story kind of blows up in that respect. Walter mm-hmm. Hott is the guy that gave us the name. And I remember sitting in his living room and somebody told us about a mortician. And what the first lead I had was that he worked at the library in Albuquerque. So I spent two hours in the library in Albuquerque talking to all the employees trying to find this guy. And I said something to that about, about that to Walter Hott. And we're sitting in his living room. And he says, oh, I know the name you're fishing for. It's Glenn Dennis. Well, obviously, we got to Glenn Dennis from Walter Hott. But if Walter Hott was uh, being as candid with us as uh, we thought, uh, we, he, he would have never pointed us at Glenn Dennis because it's clear that the Glenn Dennis story isn't true. Mm. And, he, and he should have known. Walter Hott should have known. What about Hot, uh, Hot's affidavit that was released after his death? If you, mm-hmm. And I explore this at length in the book. All of this is explored in the book in great detail. So we got people who are really interested in the book or interested in the Roswell case. You know, I need to take a look at the book because all of, all of it's laid out in detail with like hundreds of footnotes. So you can see where the information came from and that sort of thing. But, yeah. But this sounds like one of the most important Roswell books to be put out, uh, actually. But Walter Hott, around 2000, well, Walter Hott had spent. Uh, his entire life, practically, after we learned about the Roswell case, saying, all I did was write the press release. All I did was issue the press release. That's my only involvement. I didn't see anything else. In fact, as I was doing the cold case review of, of information, I came across an interview that Walter Hott had done, actually the shooting script for an interview that Walter Hott had done in 1978 or 79, I think it was. And right in wow. there... Right in there, the director, the producer, or whoever is questioning him, asks him about having seen the craft. And Hot says in there, I asked Colonel Blanchard about that, and he told me I couldn't see it. So, I mean, we have a very definitive statement where 
Walter Hahn is saying, I asked about it. I was denied permission. He didn't have any mm-hmm. need, to, need to see it. And, 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 and he, he said to me, I don't know how many times. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. All I did was write the press release. So around 2000, he's being interviewed by a French TV crew, I believe. And they're talking about all this. And he mentioned seeing the bodies. But he didn't say, he wouldn't say anything about it on camera. He would, he would, he, he would, uh, he wouldn't talk about it on camera. But he did to Wendy Connor and, um, I think Dennis Balthizer, two UFO researchers in New Mexico. He said something about it. And they sat him down in front of a camera and got him to talk about this. It was a, going to be about his military uh, experiences or his, his life story. And in the course of that, they got to the craft and the bodies. And, and he would say, in the, in, in the course of a paragraph, you know, I saw one of the bodies and the craft was really beat up. No, I didn't see anything. I just wrote the press release. I mean, all in the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he saw more than one body. Sometimes he only saw one. Sometimes the craft was badly damaged. But it was, it was all twisted and turned around in this um, rather uh, confusing interview that they had conducted with him. And how old was he by then? I'm, he would have been pushing – he would have been in his 80s, I believe, by the time right. he started talking about that. And I don't mm-hmm. want to say anything bad about old people and their memories because I happen to be one now, mm-hmm. which is very disheartening, by the way. You're, it's going to start going. <laughs> Prepare for it. Well, that's what they're going to be accusing me of now. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think Don Schmidt, maybe with Tom Carey, certainly with uh, Julie Schuler, who was Walter Hott's daughter, sat down and they – put together an affidavit. So somebody somebody else wrote the affidavit from statements that he had made. Um, so I and I really have no problem with, with Don putting together the affidavit. I mean that's mm-hmm. done frequently. Somebody else writes the affidavit and the person reviews it and then signs it. And that's exactly what happened here. But what we have here is not only the affidavit, we have all that other ancillary material that came out from other sources on, on audio tape, on videotape, or maybe on DVD now, um, or digitally recorded. But we have all of this, so we can see his confusion, we can see his confused state. So the affidavit is very crisp, very concise, and it's made up of statements he made. It's just that if you look at the history prior to the creation of that affidavit, it becomes it becomes less than sterling. Uh, you, you, have to, right. you have to look at it in the context of who Walter Hott was, what was going on. I was always of the I was of the opinion that he saw he saw that as his legacy. And that was he was trying to establish his legacy. Mm. And I And uh, I think that the it a lot of people kind of uh maybe are a bit they don't acknowledge the uh the affidavit as important as it should be. Uh, because Walter Hott is making some pretty big claims. He saw a creature that had reptilian type of skin. You know, uh, he saw these bodies, all of this stuff that had previously not really come out. And uh, I think a lot of people kind of are like, well, let's kind of put this aside. Um, just because it, it, like, as you said, it doesn't necessarily, uh, it, it's dubious. It's very dubious. And that's the problem. And, and the information is all is already out there. It's not like he was giving us information that hadn't been talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back and you read all of the materials, uh, Len Stringfield did his status reports, which was basically uh, stories of crash retrievals. 
and and that sort of thing. All of that information is out there in the public arena, and and mm-hmm. not not hard to access. And in today's environment, even it's even easier to access all of that information. So there was nothing that he gave us that was particularly new and spectacular. On the flip side of that, which is only fair to say, and you know I, I discussed this in a, a posting on my blog. Uh, about the Walter Hot affidavit, I talked to a guy named um, Harris, uh, Richard Harris, I believe, um, who had been a finance officer at Roswell in 1947. He's in the yearbook. Yeah, it's all 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 verified. And he told me in the mid 1990s, long before Walter Hot talked about seeing bodies or anything, he told me that he was um, had been in the hangar, and Walter Hot was in there, and Walter said to him, "Do you want to see the bodies?" And told him he'd hmm. just go through that door. Harris said he didn't want to, so he didn't go through the door. But the problem, and, and, and so this is a story that, that Harris tells me in the mid-1990s, and it is in conflict at that time with things that Walter Hott had said. I'm astonished that you would have the bodies laid out in a hangar and the doors wouldn't be locked. Mm-hmm. Um, so that somebody just couldn't walk in, which is, is in essence what, what Harris would have done. Uh, the point simply is here's a story told by a different source unrelated to what Walter Hott uh, had been saying all along. This suggests Walter Hott did have additional knowledge. So that's kind of the conundrum you run into. But the other, the other thing you need to look at is you know, I interviewed him in his, um, in his living room, and he had a bookcase, uh, three, I think three – shelf bookcase and it was just crammed with books on ufos he had everything about ufos in there and so it wasn't as if he was um a neophyte as if he knew nothing about the roswell case other than right um he had been assigned to the base in 1947 and clearly he was so there you go so you've got some corroboration from what walter hot says but you have walter hot badly contradicting himself from what he had, he had preached for decades and then you have, in the course of discussing the bodies, you have him contradicting himself, saying that he'd seen them, and in the next paragraph saying, no, I didn't see anything. I just wrote the press release. So mm-hmm. you've got it, when, when, the, when the stuff about the bodies and the crash came out from Walter Hott, he was very confused. I don't know his – I don't know how um, lucid – is the term I was searching for. Lucid he was when he when he was making those statements because I hadn't seen him in the last few years of his life when he had uh, began began talking about that. And this was this is the time when you know uh, my National Guard unit had been called up to go to Iraq and that sort of thing. So I was kind of out of the Roswell loop for a number of days there, a number of number of months, number of years there. Yeah, I had seen I had seen the uh, one of the the DVD I think that Wendy Connor had made. I did see that and, and noticed that he was highly confused during during that but that was really the only thing that that i had seen and i hadn't had any um personal interaction with him after mm-hmm. uh, after around 1999 and he died um five or six years later and the hard part is uh, another difficult part is we all like to think that our, our memories are not fallible and, and and they make up kind of who we are when we reflect back on our lives and, and different things that happen you know we rely on our memories and it's kind of scary to think that uh, if if those are kind of you know malleable but studies have shown over and over again more and more so these days memory is is so fallible and and we are so easily um, prone to suggestibility uh, and false memory that uh, often details of what we remember that's why 
people sit around the dinner table at Christmas and they remember things and the kids are rolling their eyes and saying, you know, we all do this with our parents. That's not what happened. And, you know, they're so certain of their version and you're so certain of your version that that's that's what makes memory and witness testimony, especially testimony that comes years after uh, difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the other thing is, and one of the things I've tried to do is the sinking of the Titanic. You had the witness statements, the, the survivor statements taken literally within hours of them getting to New York after the Titanic sank. And then you have their statements made 40, 50 years later. And we can compare what they said 50 years later with what they said at that time. And we find that there are huge changes. And it's all about, they're not really lying about it, but they've talked to other mm -hmm. survivors. They've seen things, documentaries on TV. They may have read books about it. And as they do that, they incorporate that sort of thing in their memory, not consciously, but they, right. but it, then it's become something that they remembered. And one of the big arguments about the sinking of the Titanic was it did break in two. And the witnesses who survived, well, the survivors, uh, had two stories. It broke in two before it sank, and it didn't. And we now know the truth. It broke in two because we found both pieces on the bottom of the Atlantic. But the point mm -hmm. simply is, even the people who were there and witnessed it um, weren't even sure exactly what happened uh, until mm -hmm. we could find the evidence. The one that kind of cracked me up was Bruce Ismay, who was the president of White Star Lines at the time, and he... Um, got into one of the lifeboats because he was basically kind of a creep. And uh, <laughs> when he was asked about how, how it sank, what did it look like sinking? And he said, I, I, I didn't watch. I couldn't watch it sink. And uh, you know, I'm thinking if I was this I probably wouldn't have watched it sink either. But, mm -hmm. but the point simply is, um, you know, we, you're absolutely right about memory being altered. And as people talk about what they, had, what they saw and they talk about it with other people, all of that kind of of uh, in, is incorporated in the memory, and then you can do just subtle things like a did, uh, talking about a traffic action. Did you see the green car run the stop sign? Well, you've suddenly implanted subtly a, me a right. memory that it, the car was green. It may not have been green, but mm -hmm. you asked about the green car, and everybody said, "Well, there was a green car there," and so now the car changes color. The one thing I do remember, um, uh, Art, no, not Art McQuitty, um Judd Roberts, Judd Roberts. Uh, was talking about how they had tried to go out to the Brazel Ranch and they were turned back by a car, staff car parked on the uh, side of the road. And I just asked, uh, casually asked, and I don't know why, what color was it? And he said blue. Well, in 1947, it wouldn't have been blue, it had been green. Because the Air Force mm. didn't exist in 1947. The cars weren't painted blue in 1947. They were painted that lousy olive drab green. So, mm -hmm. but he became, the, the point is simply that, uh, the the base became an Air Force base, and all of the cars were painted blue at that point. So in his memory, the car that uh, stopped him so they couldn't get out there was blue, and, and clearly it would have mm -hmm. been green. And, I mean, is that a big deal? No, but it just kind of shows you how memory uh, fools us as, as, right. as we try to access this memory. There used to be the story that the memory was like a video camera. It records everything you see, and you just have to access it properly. Mm -hmm. And now we realize that memory is maybe like a video camera that's getting a lot of input and scrambling each other. And so right. picking and choosing the bits and pieces that fit with your view of the world, not necessarily what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Jesse Marcel, uh, 
course, one of the most famous witnesses, if not the most famous, the first, uh, you know, intelligence officer to be on the scene and look at the material. He's the guy who came out, you know, in the late 70s and said, you know, that was not uh, a balloon. It was uh, a spacecraft. Now, he never said he saw any bodies, right? And um, according according. Well, again, you know, we, we go through all of this in the book in great detail for those that want to know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Jesse Marcel Jr., his son, and they discuss this periodically, he never mentioned bodies. If Jesse Marcel Sr. had seen bodies, I am absolutely convinced he would have mentioned them to his son. And the reason I say that is Jesse Marcel Jr. told me the story that he once asked his father what the atomic bomb looked like. In 1946, 1947, the, the size, the shape uh, of the atomic bomb was classified. I'm not sure why it was classified, but it was. And he said his father drew him a picture of what would have been Fat Man. If, if you remember the bombs dropped on Nagasaki, it was Fat Man, a big fat atomic bomb. And uh, showed him it and then tore it into little pieces and set it on fire in an ashtray. So, he, you know, that would be the end of it. So... Jesse Marcel Sr. shared stuff with Don that he wouldn't share with anybody else. I say all of this because after um, Jesse Marcel died, and as people were working on the case, other members of the Marcel family uh, came out and said that Jesse had told them about the craft, told them about bodies. I find those stories dubious. I just don't believe them. Uh, I know Don and Tom in their book, Witness to Roswell, uh, relate some of those stories, as do I and Roswell in the 21st century. But I look at it from the perspective as I find the stories very dubious. I would like to believe Jesse Marcel saw the bodies. I'd like to have robust testimony about that, but it simply does not exist. So Jesse Marcel, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, didn't see the bodies. He was on what we called the debris field, where there was metallic debris, but there wasn't a craft, there wasn't bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you know there were, according to the best information, and this comes all the way from uh, general officers on down, there was more than a single site. So it's like part of the craft fell on the part of the Brazel Ranch and then the rest of it came down elsewhere. And that's what the craft mm-hmm. and the bodies were. So Marcel didn't see those. Cavett, who went to the debris field with, with uh, Marcel and Mac Brazel that Sunday evening, he was the... Um, the um, counterintelligence officer assigned to the base at the time and went out there and uh, interviewed him a number of times. The only time I saw him get nervous was I had asked a question about the bodies. And he leaned forward, picked a magazine up off the coffee table, flipped through it, threw it back, and said to me, did Bill, Bill, did Bill Rickett tell you that? Bill Rickett being his NCO, his uh, member of the counterintelligence corps in Roswell in 1947. Bill Rickett tell you that? And I wanted to protect Bill Rickett because Rickett was still alive. And, and I knew Edwin Easley had passed away at that point. So I said, no, Edwin Easley told me that. And he ra- relaxed, vi- visibly relaxed. And I thought, oh, crap, I just blew it. I should have said, mm-hmm. I should have said yes. Uh, Bill Rickett told me that and a lot more. Um, but Cavett, Cavett always maintained that uh, um, there was nothing great about it. He said to me in that same interview, I asked him about collecting balloons, and this is before the the uh, Air Force got involved. And he says, "No, we were too busy with our uh, investigations to worry about recovering any balloons." So then we we, we transport to 1995, and uh, Colonel Richard Weaver is uh, 
interviewing him for the Air Force investigation. And one of the questions he asked was about what it was. And, and, and um, Cabot says, well, it was a balloon. And my next question would have been, did you bother to communicate this valuable piece of intelligence to either Jesse Marcel, who was there with you, or to Colonel Blanchard, the base commander at the time? Because, you know, we got the press release came out and said they had a flying saucer. But mm-hmm. they just continue on from that point. So Cavett said that they didn't bo- he didn't bother with any balloon recoveries or anything like this. But when he was questioned specifically about it by uh, Weaver, he said, no, he recognized it as a balloon immediately. And, and to my way of thinking, uh, if you believe the news reports from 1947 that Mac, or, or, what Bill Brazel said, Mac Brazel brought some of the debris into the sheriff's office. So the sheriff calls out to the base. Jesse Marcel comes out and looks at it and says, it's a weather balloon, and goes back to the base and finishes his lunch. Instead, he comes out there. He looks at the stuff. He talks to the sheriff. He goes back to the base and calls the base commander, Blanchard, to talk about it. And Blanchard tells him, well, we got that new CIC guy. Take him with you, which, of course, was Cabot. So then they both go back to the sheriff's office, and they all trot out to the Brazel Ranch to take a look at the debris field. None of this makes sense if it's a balloon and the debris is in the sheriff's office. So we have problems mm-hmm. with the explanations as well uh, of what it was. What if it was a mogul balloon? Would that explain if it was a top secret, you know, balloon related to a top secret project? Well, you, you have to d- divide this. The purpose of mogul was classified. The equipment mm-hmm. And the launches in New Mexico was not classified. Even the name, uh-huh. even even though they say, well, the name was highly classified and the people working on the project didn't know it. If you go back to Dr. Crary's diary, talk, Dr. Crary being leading the Mogul Balloon Project in New Mexico, in his personal notes written in 1947, I found four or five references to the name Mogul. Well, the Mogul equipment mm-hmm. arrived, so it wasn't a big secret. They're using off-the-shelf weather balloons. They're using Raywind targets that have been around for I'll say at least two years because I know they were using them uh, for artillery spotting at Okinawa during World War II. Uh, weather, weather bureaus use them all the time. The Albuquerque Weather Bureau, in fact, in a new article in the Roswell Daily Record in uh, uh, like July 10th, 1947, mentions that they were launching balloons with the Raywind targets on it. There was nothing extraordinary about the balloons. The, the equipment was not classified. What they were doing in New Mexico wasn't classified. There was a story about it that appeared, I think, first in the Alamogordo newspaper where they were doing their tests at Holloman Air Force Base, um, which was Alamogordo Army Airfield at the time. Uh, there was a, a story in the newspaper with photographs of them with the balloons. Uh, in fact, Charles Moore, who was one of the project engineers with Mogul, told me that the picture showed a, a ladder as they were launching a balloon that he had bought on, with petty cash there in Alamogordo. So, uh, hmm. uh, you know, there was nothing classified about it in New Mexico. It was just weather balloons and Raywin targets. The only thing they did that would have been confusing was they strung them together in a big, long array that was like 600 feet long. And there would be 20, 25 balloons linked together with six or seven Raywin targets, although I am convinced they didn't launch any Raywin targets in New Mexico because they didn't have radar that was tracking the balloons. So anyway, they, they didn't... Um, so there was nothing there that would have confused anybody. And when you bring in bits and pieces of the debris, you don't have this big field full of it to confuse you. When you bring in bits and pieces of it, you would have seen the balsa wood struts of the of the um, 
Raywin targets. You would have seen the neoprene rubber of the, the weather balloons. You would have seen all of that stuff, and you'd have said, "Yeah, this is a weather balloon. I don't have time for this crap." And I'd have gone back out to the bay. <laughs> right. You know. So, do you have any problems with Marcel as a witness? Because, of course, there have been questions raised. Yes, I believe mm -hmm. he liked to tell stories. There was a book mm. done by Linda Corley, and she was a graduate student in Louisiana, living in Houma, Louisiana, which is where Jesse Marcel lived. And in 1980, I think it was, she went out to visit Marcel, and she recorded four hours of uh, interviews with Marcel. And she did a book called uh, For the Sake of My Country. And you read through the book. And you find Marcel making some statements that are a little bit um, uh, embellished somewhat. He talks about uh, – the one that really struck me was he's talking about how he was performed a uh, appendectomy, um, an emergency appendectomy on a, on a soldier getting instructions over the radio. And his wife kind of mm. rolls her eyes and says, oh, not the appendix story again. So I mean mm -hmm. I think he tended to I think he tended to uh, embellish stories that yeah. way. Sounds like an episode of MacGyver. Um, well, he didn't have to improvise the the the, the scalpel and all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But, so, but yeah, it's something that's done in in television quite a bit. But yeah, I see your point. So. I mean, it all comes down to, um, which is kind of, you know, uh, it, it's just like the, the fallibility of, of the human testimony. Um, but it comes down to the base story, which was that uh, this press release was sent out. Um, Ramey did try to tell everybody it was a balloon, um, although, you know, that was a cover up. I mean, even the Air Force has admitted, OK, it wasn't the weather balloon Ramey said it was, but he was trying to hide some mogul. Um, so, and, and according to you, that was not it either. So it's still a mystery, uh, I guess. Is, is that how you Absolutely. feel? Absolutely. I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, if you, if you'd asked me, uh, 15 years ago, was it extraterrestrial? I said, oh, definitely. hundred percent. No question about it. You ask me today, mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. I, I, I do not know of a terrestrial explanation for it. I mean, we've looked at everything that I can find from uh, rockets and missiles gone astray from White Sands, which happened in 1947. They did go astray. Uh, test aircraft dropping an atomic bomb by accident in New Mexico. I mean, even the, the mock-ups that they, they practiced with. And there was a story from the um, Albuquerque newspaper at some point in 1957, for example, the Air Force dumped an aircraft with an atomic bomb on it. I don't know if they dumped the aircraft or they accidentally dropped the bomb, uh, dropped a bomb on Albuquerque, an atomic bomb on Albuquerque. Yeah, that was, uh, I guess, turbulence and the guy fell on the lever, uh, if I remember the, the article correctly, and <laughs> dropped the bomb. Luckily, it an was atomic bomb on Albuquerque. Yeah. Well, it didn't detonate, obviously, but the point simply is yeah. we know that story. So, you know, 10, or 10 years earlier, if they dropped one on by accident in New Mexico, we'd probably know it by now. They would say, yeah, this is, this is what happened and right. all of that sort of thing. There is, there is an interesting story that I know that uh, has, has appeared. I think the guy's name is Newley who talked about being a, uh, a mechanic at, at Roswell it, after this event took place, but later in 1947. And he said that he had been um, – 
working on, we'd been in the hangar and an MP came and chased him away. But, but before that had happened, he'd seen in the uh, bomb bay of a B-29, he'd seen this thing that looked like a, uh, you know, had a big bulbous nose on it and tapered back and they thought it might be the escape pod for the Roswell case. Uh, and, and the guy said, well, I had, you know, the guy said, I had the proper credentials. I should have been able to be there. And the problem with, with it is, and the clue is, it was a silver plate B-29. Silver plate was specially not mo- modified to carry the atomic bombs. And I think what the guy saw was a mock-up of an atomic bomb. And, and even though uh, the guy had the proper line badge, and, and again, I had line badges when I was in the Air Force as an intelligence officer. And even though I was on the primary staff, and even though I was the intelligence officer, my line badge didn't allow me everywhere on the, on the flight line. Uh, the, only, the only people mm-hmm. that would have those kind of badges would be like the base commander and, and, and people like that. But, but uh, So he was chased away from that, and, and the conclusion was drawn that this must have been the escape pod. I think, no, I think it was a mock-up of, a B-20, of, a, of an atomic bomb. And if you go to the Internet and you look up the MK-3 atomic bomb, I think it's the MK-3 atomic bomb, you'll see it's got a big bulbous nose and it tapers on back. So what he was describing was an atomic bomb and not the escape pad or escape pod from a from a UFO. So I mean we we've got to we've got to search for those stories and, and and here again is I think a little bit of my military experience has come in because I realized that that even though he had a line badge um, it wouldn't have allowed him ev- everywhere and since the um, size and shape of the atomic bomb was classified in 1947 he was he probably saw something that he shouldn't have or had gotten into a part of the hangar he shouldn't have. Um, because he was allowed in other section, uh, on, on other sections of the of the flight line, but the MP chased him away properly. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: um, I, I, this is something I'm curious about because more and more we see these old FOIA, these old documents being quote unquote lost. So, for instance, um, you know John Greenwald has gotten some replies in the last year or so about the NSA documents that you know were and the DIA documents that were part of the cause. Um, um, releases of, of old files, and uh, they were highly redacted, so they were mostly blacked out, you know, and Stanton Friedman shows them all the time at his lectures. Uh, however, they say they've lost the original, so they can't sh- produce the unredacted files. Uh, maybe we believe that, maybe we don't. There's a Kecksburg incident, uh, other files that have been allegedly lost. Could it be that the uh, they truly are lost. Could it be that we never know because those records so long ago were just deemed as, well, this isn't important enough. Nobody cares about this or is looking at it. Maybe it's too weird or something. So the files are just burnt up and and uh, gone. Uh, and, I mean, to that end, that would be a, a terrestrial explanation, meaning that, you know, it was something that was insignificant. Of course, material that is otherworldly would be very significant. But if it, if it's something like that where it was just so uh, trivial to them, they figured, you know, let's just uh, bury this forever. Uh, is that possible? You think? no. Somebody would go to jail mm-hmm. when you're dealing with top the top secret secret materials. They have to be declassified. Um, there are there are some secret documents that are stamped downgraded at three year intervals, which means if it's a secret today, three years from now it'll be confidential, and three years from then it'll be uh, for official use only, and then it'll be unclassified. And you know, those documents are 
documents are just routine documents. Top secret material is treated very, very differently. And what you have to do is, and I, I've been, I've destroyed many, many classified documents in my career as a, as a intelligence officer. But for secret and above, you had to create a record of the destruction of that document. Uh, it had to give the title and the date, and I don't remember all what information you had, but you had to produce, and, and, and we would, you know, there were pages and pages of these things as we were going through to, to destroy. And we, and we'd fill out page after page after page after page and destroy, you know, 25, 30, 40 documents at a time. And we were getting, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a record of the destruction. If it's a classified document mm-hmm. and it has not been properly declassified, and there should be a record of that, and it's just simply lost, somebody goes to jail. You can't lose classified materials that way. You, but they are losing them. I mean, we've got many instances now where they say they've lost them. And I'm them. saying somebody should go to jail. I'm saying, yeah, but unfortunately I'm saying, nobody has. I'm saying there should be a record of those documents. Mm-hmm. There should be a record of them somewhere. And I know that that was one of the things we, when you say, somebody says, do you have a copy of X document? I say no. It was properly destroyed, and here is the record of its destruction. I mm-hmm. personally destroyed this document. And I know with, um, I think with Top Secret, you had to have two guys um on the sheet signing, I think for secret you only needed one. You know, you had to have one commissioned officer. If you had, to, if it was top secret, you had to have two commissioned officers, I believe, or maybe just two people with the proper clearances signing off on the documents being destroyed. But I, I remember spending many, many hours at the Great Lakes Naval Air Space Station destroying classified material, and it was always a hoot because I would call out and I would say, "This is Captain Randall." And I was an Air Force captain, and they would get real excited because the naval captain is a really high-ranking guy, and, a, and an Air, Air Force captain isn't much. And they'd get real excited. Yes, Captain, what can we do for him? I'm over here at O'Hare, and they would say, "Oh," because they realized now I was an Air Force captain. But we would go, we would <laughs> go over there and de- destroy the classified materials. And what we and, and the problem was we had to use these machines that basically pulped it. So that you, if you found a piece with a letter on it, you were doing really well. You turned it basically into um, uh, lint. These mm-hmm. machines did. Um, you know the, the the shredders we use. You can put the things back together um, if if you if you have the time and the inclination to do so. So this was pulping the stuff, and that was the way we needed to destroy right. it. But we had records of it being destroyed. So if somebody came and said, "Do you have a copy of this document?" and I said, "No." They said, do you have a record of its destruction? And I would say, yes, and here it is. So if they're saying we've lost the documents, I am very dubious of that claim because it it should be somebody going to jail. Mm-hmm. Well, having said that, what's interesting is, you know, especially with this resurgence with your uh, – the stories, the inaccurate stories going out about what you have said has kind of sparked this conversation again. And so many people, for some reason, have this feeling, and they get frustrated with Roswell, and they're like, we need to close the book on Roswell. This finally closes the book on Roswell. But having said what you said, uh, you can never close the book on Roswell because stuff could still turn up. And, but, but, but where do you look? Who do you talk to? That, that, well, that's the hard that, part. Maybe all the leads are gone, but something could still turn up. And 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 that's absolutely it. I've been preparing a um, uh, a piece for my blog about Roswell: The Next Step. And mm-hmm. you know, do we interview the grandchildren of these of the witnesses? Um, you know, do we go back and we look at the the uh, the, the unit history, which you know I've got. 
I've got microfilm copies of the unit histories for crying out loud. You know, how deeply do we, there's nothing in there that gives us a clue. Uh, we look at Wright Field, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, all of that sort of thing. There's really no place mm-hmm. to go at, go here. Um, all we right. can do is reevaluate the information and see if something pops up, and that's what I attempted to do with the book. One of the interesting things on my radio show on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, um, I got a chance to talk to a guy who had been in Project Blue Book at the very end. And so here's mm-hmm. a guy. I mean, we got a picture of him standing there with Hector Quintanilla. Uh, so it's clearly he's clearly with a member with Project Blue Book. And I had a chance to interview him and talked about this and learned about how the investigation took place toward the end. And it's just not what we thought. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Well, we are, but but a lot of the stuff I asked him about the classified materials because he had gathered a lot of the material they were supposed to get rid of it, take it to the dump, and he thought some of the stuff should be preserved. So what he'd done is he'd, he'd taken a lot of the stuff home, and a UFO researcher, Rob Mercer in Ohio, found a box of this material for sale on Craigslist for crying out loud. Oh right, and mm-hmm. and went through all of that and got the box and realized who had collected it and managed to find the guy, this Carmen Morano in, uh, at his home and talked to him and got more of the material. And so my question when I was interviewing him on the radio show was, you know, about the classification. He said, oh, none of the stuff is classified. So we get to the brew book and we're hearing about it's classified and all this stuff. And I've gone back now through a number of the microfilms and looked at it. And very few of the documents have any classification on it, on it at all. The only thing they were worried mm-hmm. about is revealing the names of witnesses because they had promised witnesses in the course of their investigations. They wouldn't release their names so people would know about it. So that's why they went through and tried to redact all the names. They did a lousy job of that, by the way. And the information is out there. And I guess Rob, Rob uh, Mercer told me that he had a complete index of, of uh, the Project Blue Book files with all the names in it. You know, the copy hmm. I've got, their names wow. are all redacted. I've got a complete list of all the na- of the witnesses because Bob Cornett and I had a chance to look at the um, uh, Project Blue Book files while they were at Maxwell Air Force Base before it was all redacted. And one of the first things we did was go through the index and write down the case and all the witnesses for it. So we were able to put the wow. names back in. I, I think Don Berliner had done the same thing, and I think Brad Sparks has done some something of similar nature. And so we could put it in, but Mercer's got the, got everybody's name. Uh, mm-hmm. And you go through you go through the cases, and there, there's just some really laughable things on the Arnold sighting, the Kenneth Arnold sighting in, in June of 1947. There's they even went to the um, extreme of, of blacking out Ar- Arnold's initials. You know, it's, it's the KA. They black those out. And on the on one of the interviews, it's got written in grease pencil across the page in letters at least an inch high: Arnold sighting. You know, so that's funny. So it's there, and, and they would have newspaper clippings, and so you could put the names back in through the newspaper clippings that went with the file. So you could put the names in, but Mercer's got a complete complete set of that. But the point simply is, uh, some of the things we thought about the Air Force investigation aren't true, and the classifications have been jumbled, and things weren't as highly classified as we thought. You know, the same thing with Mogul. It, the, the ultimate purpose was classified, but the, um, the the stuff going on in New Mexico wasn't classified. So the point is, is there's really not uh, – there's no place to go with the Roswell case at, at here and now. There's no place to go other than to review what we have. And sometimes a cold case review brings information forward, but um, 
we're kind of we're kind of stuck on that right now. And I, as I said, that was the point of Roswell in the 21st century: is do the cold case and try to put all that information into a single resource um, that may lead somebody else somewhere. Because I'm not sure where to go with it. Yeah. Well, and then you have Tom DeLong uh, alluding to possibly this McCaslin guy who used to work at Wright Patterson uh, Research Laboratories was in charge of them. Uh, he uh, implies he certainly has talked with him. We know this from the Podesta WikiLeaks, but he implies that this McCaslin told him about a recovered alien body. And uh, Tom DeLong even told Podesta, you know. This is the guy who was in charge of the labs where they sent the Roswell material. So I don't know that that's going to lead anywhere, but that type of person could be out well, there. Well, the thing, the thing is uh, there was a, an FBI document, the, what, the Hoddle memo, that shows up periodically. And everybody says, here's the proof. Here's the mm-hmm. proof. And we've had the memo yeah. for like 8 billion years, and, and it, refers to the, it refers to the Aztec crash. Doesn't refer to Roswell, although it doesn't say that, but it's clear that he's talking about the Aztec crash. And here's an FBI document. All it is is an agent heard this story and, and he put it in a memo and sent it to the FBI. He didn't try to verify the information. He didn't do any further with it. He just creates this memo and it, like I said, it resurfaces all the time as, as the documentation, but we know what it relates to and we know where it goes. So it really doesn't lead us anywhere. Yeah. So we'll see, but I, at least, um, you know, your book is, is an example of, of work regarding Roswell that should and needs to be done. Uh, so I, I'm excited about your new book. Is it out? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You can go to Amazon okay. right now this minute. And as an e-book, you can, you can have it in your, on your iPad or your, or your phone in like 10 seconds. Uh, all right, I'm going to do the, that. The only problem, you, you, you also can get a hard copy. The only problem is, and, I, and I'll tell you this, is that the footnotes in the ebook are all at the end of the book as opposed to being on the page. In the hard copy, it's all at the, the footnotes are at the bottom of the page. So, you know, it's hard to flip back and forth between the footnotes when they're at the end of the book. The other thing is there's no index in the book, but I did do a blog. I did, a, I, I did put an index on my blog, so if people want an index for the book, uh, and it relates to the hard copy again, but it's, um, it's you know, you go to www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and you just type uh, Roswell Index into the search engine and it should take you right to um, the index for the book. So it's available. as well. So there's an index available, but it's it's out and about and people can uh, access it immediately. Perfect. Well, now if, if listeners uh, run across these stories that say, Kevin Randall says Roswell is fooey. Uh, they, they've got the word from you uh, on what your real thoughts are. And I just can't believe I, – I, I don't know how, if it's been shocking to you how many of these stories have gone out and not one of these people contacting you. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. you know. And it's not like I don't have <laughs> – a large president. Yeah, the you're web, very accessible uh, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But nobody's ever bothered to ask me about that, and it's just sort of the uh, headline that I think it came out of the Fortean Times and the Jerry Clark's review. And if you read the review, it just says it says basically I'm not sure anymore that it's it's extraterrestrial. Uh, that's still a very uh, distinct possibility, but the evidence isn't as robust as it once was, and that's where we are. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to put all the evidence in the book so that people can make their make up their own mind. 
But I still feel it's a great and one of the most important cases. I would imagine you still feel that way. I mean, even regarding other great cases, Rendlesham or here, the Phoenix Lights or, or others, uh, Chicago O'Hare. We don't know that uh, any of those incidents are related to extraterrestrials, but we know there's some sort of very strange uh, occurrence that took place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and. You know, uh, we have, I think we've gathered all the evidence on the Roswell case that we can. And so now we need to evaluate the evidence, but we also have to see how it ties into the rest of the UFO phenomenon and see if it mm-hmm. relates specifically to it. I have heard somebody has a, an explanation for it that comes out of some kind of government secrecy, but I have not seen the evidence for that. So I don't know exactly what that might be and where it might lead us. And it might lead us to the mm-hmm. extraterrestrial for all I know, but we don't, we don't have that. But th- th- there might be something out there. Um, but at this point, I'm just not sure where to go and what to do with the Roswell case. And I guess my last question, because uh, just for any people who are curious, um, uh, and I, and I'm, know your answer because I, I a lot of these uh, people have said you know a secret Japanese um, test that where they floated something over here and they're little Japanese people or that they were you know it was Nazi or that it was Russian and there were these mongoloid people in them uh, stuff like this I mean none of those are, are have much veracity to I them see nothing that takes us to Roswell. I mean, we can find, if we go through the records, we go through the information that we have, we can find the reasons to discount that. You know, if the, if the Nazis mm-hmm. had some sort of flying saucer, it would have gained complete air superiority like immediately. And uh, things like that, you know, it just it just doesn't make good sense. And the documentation is very, very weak on that uh, to the point of being nearly non-existent. I know um, uh, uh, argument erupted on my blog of what, a year ago, about it being a Tu-4, which is a Tupolev bomber that Soviets had created, which is basically a B-29. During World War II, four, I think four of them had landed in the Soviet Union, so they had four complete B-29s, um, they, it, it, and they duplicated it right down to its rivets, uh, So they and they designated it. Tupolev 4, and somebody said, well, that was a Soviet B-29 that they'd flown to Roswell to prove that they had the capability to reach the interior of the United States. And you go back through the records and you find, well, that's just simply not true. It's an interesting, no, it's not even an interesting theory. It's, it's just <laughs> it's just nonsense to clutter the landscape for 10 or 15 minutes. Right. I guess by internet trolls, we would say. And uh, but, but I mean, we we try to look at that stuff and tried to look at that stuff to see if there was anything mm-hmm. that was viable there. And we just never right. found anything that was viable. The closest anybody came was Project Mogul. And I think the evidence, the documentation rules it out. But that's my opinion. And every time I say that, I end up hearing from all the uh, skeptics and the debunkers telling me why I'm wrong on that. And uh, so they don't mm-hmm. bother to write because I, I know I'm wrong. Don't, so just leave me alone. Uh, but the documentation pretty well rules it out. So, uh, you know, kind, kind of there we are. I, we're left with we're left really with no explanation for what it was. And and mm-hmm. and you can use that as a springboard in the extraterrestrial if you want. I don't really want to do that. But, you know, my inclination is to suggest it may, it may well be extraterrestrial, but the evidence isn't there to prove it. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on with this conversation. This is this is a lot of fun and uh you know i i immediately want to i didn't we haven't even mentioned that this is an anniversary 
for the event. Yes, we the, have what not, is the 70th. Yes, we did not mention that. <laughs> and I'm sure they'll have a big festival in Roswell and a lot of people will go. Yeah, I'll be there speaking, but have you you haven't been to Roswell to do a talk for quite some time. I haven't time. been since 2012. Yeah, that's too bad. You should be there every year. Uh, if they invite me, I would make an endeavor to go. But unfortunately, my health might prevent me from getting down there. So. Oh no! Uh, it's not. A, okay. It's nothing. It's nothing deadly. It's nothing. Uh, you know, it's nothing fatal. It's just that it's very hard, difficult to travel long distances. Oh no! All right. Well, I hope you feel better, and uh, we'll be in touch. Hey, uh, be sure to be in touch for crying out loud. <laughs> Will do. I'm I'm at your blog a lot, so I feel like we're we're in touch frequently. Well, I go to Open Minds frequently too, so we're we're even on that point. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much to Kevin Randall for joining us once again. I think that uh, this analysis of the Roswell situation is very, very important and interesting. I still feel, you know, like I, like I talked about with with Kevin and Martin. And uh, the guys on uh, the Paracast, uh, Gene and Chris, and uh, oh man, there was another guy on there, and I forget his name right now. Great, great guy. But uh, that the Roswell case, uh, you know, is maybe there's lulls, but it never seems to go away, and that not because people just keep rehashing old stuff, but because sometimes new discoveries or new things do happen, and uh, so uh, then you have to review it again. And that's not a bad thing. So uh, a lot of people get really tired of hearing about Roswell, and maybe you're one of those people. But hopefully we gave you an example of uh, how you never know what's going to happen. I mean, um, we talked about these Tom DeLonge things. Uh, uh, who knows if there's something there? Only time will tell. So we'll see. Uh, anyway... Thank you very much to Kevin. Be sure to check out his blog. It's called A Different Perspective, and you can just Google Kevin Randall, and you'll be able to find it. Really great stuff. Very interesting. When he covers something, you know, he's going to uh, put kind of a filter on it that is very critical, uh, which is important. And, uh, and as he talks about, you know, anecdotal information is one thing, but hard data and, and content of that anecdotal information and the way it corresponds with other testimony is really, really important. Um, first, for the veracity, but second, to also really get a good idea of what the heck happened. If you don't have a narrative uh, that is consistent among your witnesses, how can you really, um, you know, understand or, or have faith in, in what might have occurred in any given situation. So all of those things are just very, very important considerations. And Kevin is great uh, in taking all of those things into account. So uh, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of Kevin's work. So thanks again to Kevin for joining us on the show. Thanks also to Martin Willis. Like I said, you can listen to him with, uh, I always forget the name, and I just am too forgetful. But uh, the Metabunk guy, the guy who wrote the story about the Chilean craft, you know, be sure to talk or listen to Will, uh, Martin talking to this gentleman about that. Also, you know, I occasionally do other podcasts. I get busy with the 
creating or posting news and stuff like that. So I'm not always able to. But especially this time of year, I want to help promote the UFO Congress and all of the great speakers that we have. Uh, so I'll do more of these shows. So um, the Paracast, I was like going on. Uh, with them, as I, I talked about, I was on there. I was on a global perspective um, or global newsmaker focus with Patrice Sheridan, who's on KGRA. So check that out. And then also airing tonight, I was talking with Greg Bishop about this Chilean case and more in the UFO Congress. Greg Bishop will be a speaker at the Congress, and I'm very excited about that. And uh, also, you know, we talked about uh, all of this stuff. So I really love talking with Greg Bishop. As you heard Martin say it, he's one of his favorites. And so it's going to be great to have him at the Congress as well. So check those programs out when you get a chance. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining our program every week. Uh, Right now, I don't have anyone slated for next week but that'll probably change i sure i'll get someone on uh like i keep saying you know i keep uh warning you guys i know this time of year it gets a little dicey for me because we're so busy with the conference it's only a few weeks away february 15th to the 19th um and so we're just so swamped with getting prepared for that that sometimes it takes uh sometimes i i need to spend more time on other people's show than working on my own. So uh, I can't guarantee we'll have shows from here until the Congress, but uh, we'll probably have one or two still. But I do my best because there's always so many great people to talk to and so many interesting topics to cover. Um, So uh, I just want to give you that warning. As for the Congress, a lot of exciting things going on. The one thing I want to tell you is this week is the last week to order discounted tickets online. So if you want to order tickets, you got to go online and do that this week if you want the discounted price. Now, a lot of people like to come buy tickets at the door, which is fine. Sometimes people aren't sure of their schedule, so they need to come to the door. In fact, most people seem to buy their tickets at the door. But I, I just like to, like I always do, I give you guys a heads up on everything. So I want to give you all the heads up that this week is last chance to get the tickets uh, at the discounted price. We've got a great crowd coming. We've already got a lot of media attention. Um, we're going to have people from TMZ there. I'm not sure if it's going to show up on their regular TMZ, but they're doing a special kind of other program. People Magazine, uh, Now This News, if you've heard of that, Um a lot of the local news channels, and I'm hearing more and more from different news agencies on a regular basis. So as usual, we're going to get a lot of coverage from mainstream media as well. So that's always fun and exciting. I know I'm forgetting a few others, but uh, uh, that's always fun to have those cameras around and have them interviewing people and getting them excited to talk about some of these very credible Uh, People that will be speaking, people like uh, a professor from Norway, you know, on their decades long investigation or or people like a a neuroscientist talking about alien abduction. For goodness sakes, what's up with that? Some kernels. And then, of course, we have people like Yvonne Smith, a a therapist, you know, and they're always really excited in this where we have crowds of people. In the morning and the evenings that come into these uh, group sessions with Yvonne where they share their experiences. And uh, that's always very popular. And it's amazing how many people get involved with that. And I think that's always shocking that it's not, you know, 
one-offs. It's not just um, one person here or there that is, is seeing something they can't explain, nor is it just one person here or there that is having experiences where they believe, you know, they've maybe contact, been in contact or met something from elsewhere. Uh, it's hard for, for people to get their mind around, but uh, there are a lot of people that feel they have these experiences, a lot of them very credible uh, people that, uh, you know, um, we would take seriously given their credentials and demeanor had uh, they been sp- speaking about something more prosaic. So uh, it's always a lot of fun. The media is always really interested. And thus far... The media we've talked to, you know, is interested in the topic, not just in teasing and stuff like that. Also, for the film festival, we have a lot of great films. This is really interesting. I want to talk about one of these films that we've got in the film festival. It's with Major Ed Dames. Now, he was, you know, the CIA released all of these files recently. They were actually files that are mostly already out there. In fact, they, these were accessible through a computer system that they had in Washington. But you had to physically go there to get to these files. Uh, a com, uh, uh, somebody who contributes to OpenMinds.tv often, Shepard Johnson, had actually written a story about this and taken some pictures. And we got those on the website. Uh, he wrote about this this computer system like last year, and now finally they've put all those files online. So it's a lot of files we were aware of, but the news is really picking up on this Stargate program, something John Alexander uh, knows very well, the colonel who will be speaking at our conference, these, these remote viewers who remote viewed things for the military. It's like a psychic gift they think everybody has. And Major Ed Dames was one of those people and he and others, we had uh, Joe McGonigal, who I think is probably, you know, the most one of the most credible people that was in that group. Uh, Ingo Swan was the psychic who helped start this group. And all of these guys have been asked to remote view UFOs and, and they see aliens and they think there's an alien presence here. I mean, they believe some pretty wild stuff. Uh, and they believe this because of information they feel they received through this remote viewing. So it's really wild. I don't even know what the heck to make of this. But one of these films that we're going to be showing at the film festival, and you'll be able to see this at the UFO Congress uh, website, uh, you'll be able to see information about it um, this week as we put up the, the people who will be part of the film festival. But this is interesting. It's Major Ed Dames talking about his findings uh, this way, UFOs and ETs and stuff like that. So it's just fascinating that uh, these remote viewers uh, feel like they've obtained this information. Uh, government, military, remote viewers. The world is a strange place, people. It is flipping weird. I don't have to tell you that. Just turn on the TV and you'll find that out in a heartbeat these days. Wild, wild stuff. So this will be a lot of fun. This will be interesting. Even if you don't make it to the Congress, you'll be able to find information out about all of these films. See who wins. Uh, some great stuff that will be involved in the film festival. And if you want, if you're coming to the Congress and you want to judge the films, you can come a day early. Come on Tuesday. We show the films all day Tuesday, and that's when judging 
takes place. Now, if you can't come on Tuesday, we still have the People's Choice Award. The judging for that takes place Saturday evening at the awards banquet. So uh, those are the two ways you can be involved as a judge for these films. And we'll see who wins. It's always exciting to find out who will win the EBE Award for 2017. Very prestigious award. People put those laurels on their DVDs and, um, you know, it, it, it's a really important special type of thing. So this is going to be a lot of fun. That's what's going on uh, right now at the UFO Congress. Uh, you can check out the latest at the website ufocongress.com. Do I have anything else to say about the Congress? Not at this moment that I can think of, but I will probably regret not mentioning something as soon as this show is done because that's commonly what happens with me. I forget stuff as I age and my my brain turns to mush, unfortunately. Happens to all of us. Happens to the best of us. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to Caleb Hanks, who does the opening and close music. Also, thank you to the gentleman out there who listened to Google Play, and he said, hey, why aren't you on Google Play? And we used to be like Google Play when they started. They like took all the podcasts. They went and sought them out. But now, of course, just like everybody, iTunes, everybody, you have to go through their process to get on Google Play. But I went through that and now we're on Google Play, so you can find us there. I'll put a link on the radio page because uh, I don't know if we're searchable on Google Play yet. But, uh, yeah, so if you use that for listening to your podcast, you'll be able to do it, uh, our, our podcast, uh, through Google Play soon. I think we're on everything else. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on uh, just about everything else out there. So this was just one, uh, the final one, I guess. So thank you so much for letting me know. Now we're out there. Otherwise, uh, we will talk to you soon, people. Hopefully next week, I'll do my best to get together another great show for next week. But until then, adios muchachos.